The Pike River coal mine explosion, in which 29 men died, is New Zealand's worst mining disaster for almost a century. The mine had only opened two years ago and was under pressure to lift production. What is known about the cause, and what implications does the accident have for an industry the government has been championing? Environment reporter Ian Telfer investigates. We have come to stand as a community in solidarity with you, the families of those lost underground. At the memorial service at Greymouth's Ormotor Racecourse, thousands turned up to pay their respects to the 29 men killed at Pike River. The grief still roar and will likely stay so until the men's bodies can be recovered. But at home, on the streets, and in the pubs, people are also turning to hard questions about what went wrong, and asking if the accident could have been prevented. The Prime Minister John Key says there'll be at least four separate inquiries. Including a royal commission led by a judge raised on the west coast. Today, I'm announcing that cabinet has agreed to establish a royal commission into the Pike River mine tragedy. I believe that a royal commission is the appropriate form of inquiry to look into New Zealand's worst disaster since the Erebus air crash. The Minister of Labour, Kate Wilkinson, says incidents like this shouldn't happen in the modern workplace. Something has gone drastically wrong. We need to find out what it is, and we need to do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think we've got a lot of questions、uh, to ask. I think we've got a lot of questions that do need answering. So, what did happen on the afternoon of Friday, November the 19th? The Pike River Coal Company turned down requests from Insight to discuss the chain of events that day. But at the news conferences held over the last two weeks, the company's chief executive, Peter Whittle. Has revealed fragments of what's believed to have taken place underground. From this, it's possible to piece together a rough picture. At 3:44 p.m., there was an explosion inside the mine. The company says at the time there were 31 miners below ground. One, Russell Smith, was late to work, and was on a loader making his way towards the rest of his colleagues on the afternoon shift. He was about 700 meters down the entry shaft. When the blast pummeled him with dust, debris, and dangerous mine gases for almost a minute, a second miner, Daniel Rockhouse, was another kilometer further down the mine's tunnel, but on his way out. But we also know there was no, no mining activity at the time of the explosion. The coal preparation plant had been down for a few hours for a maintenance job.、Uh, the afternoon shift had gone underground to, to stationary machinery. They, they weren't working. There was some maintenance going on. That's one of the reasons Daniel was sent out was to get some gravel to fill in a hole in the ground because they were down. He wasn't needed to operate. So they said, "Well, while we're down, we'll do another job. Can you go and get some gravel, and we'll do that job?" The rest were further in again, in the roads driven into the coal seams. Those remaining 29 were in groups and a mixture of staff miners and outside contractors. The explosion appears to have knocked out the sensors and the ventilation system immediately. This was picked up above ground in the mine's offices. Our first indication that something had occurred, and not not expecting it to be a,、um, an explosion, but the first indication that something was different in the mine was that we actually lost that monitoring system. That the actual electronics and, and information back to the control room was lost, and an electrician was deployed to go and find out what was going on. He entered the mine. And 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 noticed that there was smoke and a smell and everything else, and、uh, and he retreated. Peter Whittle says Daniel Rockhouse was able to use the only phone in the mine at ten past four, 
almost half an hour after the explosion. He actually was overcome by the, the explosion. He did get to a phone, he did make a phone call, and that's how we first were aware that the incident from him had occurred. But he was quite some, probably three to four hundred metres away from the nearest other employee when, uh, when he was uh, overcome. As Daniel Rockhouse was making his way out, he discovered Russell Smith lying in the tunnel, and together they staggered to fresh air. Contact with the trapped men was never re-established. Tomorrow and in the days and weeks ahead, let this terrible event be the starting point from which we work to find the answers to our questions and draw lessons for the future. Experts say the explosion was caused by the flammable gas methane, which is at its most volatile when it's mixed with oxygen at a concentration between 5 and 15 per cent. Normally it's kept well below 2 per cent. It's possible the gas had built up as it leaked out of the coal faces, but was somehow not detected by the range of monitoring equipment used in the mine. The only other explanations are sudden burst of methane gas released too quickly for any of the sensors to react. There also had to be a spark or some other sort of ignition source to set off the explosion. These are normally carefully eliminated from the mine, the equipment made spark-proof and tools used which don't flint. Was there a shot blast or drill which set it off? A blast was made at 11 o'clock that morning, but that was a routine operation which happened every day, and the company says all detonators and explosives have been accounted for. Peter Whittle says all he can say is that there was a disastrous set of circumstances. At the time of the incident, there was an unsafe situation. It goes without saying, otherwise it wouldn't have occurred. It doesn't say the mine was operated unsafely. It doesn't say that the events leading up to the incident were being managed unsafely. But at the time, and none of us know what the situation was, but at the time of the event, there must have been an unsafe situation had developed. But what that was, I don't know. This is not the first time there's been a gas explosion in a mine on the coast. Nor in fact in the same Brunner coal seam. More than a century ago, in 1896, the Brunner mine exploded, killing 65 men. On the 60th anniversary of that disaster, 91-year-old H.G. Griffin recalled how he was working on the railways, trucking coal, when he saw dirty smoke pouring from the mine's entrance and men running out. Bill Hill, I think, was the first man that I seen come down there. He rushed into there and, of course, they had to go and fetch him out. He wouldn't allow any men to go in there. There were other men, the practical miners, were going in, you see. Of course, we, I wouldn't think about going into the place with it like it was. Since then, there have been at least seven other major explosions in underground coal mines. In 1967, the Strongman mine near Greymouth exploded, killing 19, and had to be closed, forever entombing two men's bodies. More recently, a mine at nearby Mount Davy, run by the state-owned enterprise Solid Energy, was closed in 1988 after two fatal gas blasts. The part of the Brunner coal seam which Pike River's been extracting reaches high into the Paparoa Ranges. It contains at least 50 million tonnes of the highest value coking coal, highly sought by China and India for making steel. A mining safety expert at Queensland University, David Cliff, says it's unusual for such a small, new mine to accumulate large gas pockets when there are few active coal faces. 
but he says it appears Pike River coal contains relatively high amounts of gas, with 10 to 11 cubic metres of methane per tonne of coal. I've seen reports from various places about the, what they call the methane content of the coal, and they measure it in cubic metres, which is a volume per tonne of coal. And a gassy mine would be one that requires those levels to be drained to bring it under control. Now, someone's mentioned figures in excess of 9 cubic metres per tonne. From the documentation I've seen for Pike River, they do drain the methane, but you'd have to you know, pull the level down to sort of to be happy probably 2 or 3 cubic metres per tonne. Since the first explosion, there have been at least another three inside the mine, as smouldering fire sets off the gas, which continues to build up. But Peter Whittle told TVNZ he believes Pike River's no more than moderately gassy and not prone to gas outbursts. The actual total quantity of gas per, per cubic metre or per tonne of coal uh, wasn't uh, very, very high. I've worked in mines with up to twice as much methane as what uh, Pike had. But because we had a thick seam and because we had quite permeable coal, in other words, a gas was given off freely, then uh, the daily hazard or the daily management requirement for gas was foremost in our operational requirements. A methane drainage system and large ventilation fans were needed to blow air deep into the mine and dilute the explosive gas to a safe level. The company says it had recently installed an extra fan, boosting the capacity of the system by 30%. It's an open question whether it was large enough or built with enough backup safety features. For instance, a former head of Bill Clinton's US Mine Safety and Health Administration, David McAteer, says the fact the power went out with the explosion sounds like poor management. Explosions occur from the presence of methane, and the presence of methane needs to be removed. And that is removed by ventilating the system. And if you have a ventilation system that is tied to only one source of power, that's an error. You need to have a ventilation system that is tied to more than one source of power. Another possible problem with the mine is the way it slopes upwards in a gradient of 1 and 11. Andrew Little from the Engineering, Printing and Manufacturing Union, which represents mine workers, says the inquiries will have to ask if the design contributed to a methane build-up. One of the unique features of this mine is that it wasn't, although it was underground, it was actually going uphill because it was going inside a hill and reaching up to to coal seams, which is unusual for a coal mine, which tends to sort of generally go in a downwards direction. So there are a lot of things that go back to the very origins of the planning and design of this mine. In New Zealand terms, the mine was state-of-the-art, but this meant higher upfront costs, bringing it under heavy financial pressure. The Pike River Company had invested almost $300 million over more than a decade and had only $9 million from two shipments of coal to show for it. The mine's the company's only asset, giving it no ability to prop it up from other operations. Radio New Zealand's business editor, Patrick O'Mara, says it's well known the company has been cash-strapped. Part of the mine's ventilation shaft collapsed in February last year. Now that cost them $7 million to fix. It's had problems with malfunctioning mining machines. First of all, it had to get through fractured rock near the Harwater Fault, and that was what they were hoping was that they were going to find coal. They actually discovered rock, like 20, 30 metres of this rock, which they had to dig through. That was a delay that they hadn't foreseen. There's also been issues with actually just trying to dig the coal out. 
normally what would happen is when you, you dig into this coal, it usually crumbles out and you're able to move it this way. What they've found is actually as they've dug into it, they've actually just been soaring into it. And it's actually been much more difficult to actually get it off and get it out. Now, that's not to say that's necessarily the whole seam is like that, but that's just some of the problems that they've encountered. Such a litany of setbacks has led to persistent suggestions among union members that Pike's been cutting corners on safety. Few will talk openly about this, but one who's raised the possibility is Cathy Lintott, the art of Ricky Kane, one of the 29 killed in the mine. Mrs Lintott says Ricky didn't particularly like going underground, especially back in the mine's first months two years ago. When the mine first opened, they had little pops that were going off, just little gas things, and he got a bit tetchy. So he spoke to um, Donnie Ladner, who was in Mines Rescue at the time, spoke to him, and he talked to him and said that, you know, sometimes it happens, and just always be aware and try and be safety conscious. But the company's chairperson, John Dow, strongly rejects the idea it was cutting corners. Mr Dow says Pike River Coals set out to be better than any other mine on safety well beyond the legal requirements. Gas management in coal mines, you can imagine, is about the most carefully watched and managed thing that there is. We have gas detectors on all pieces of equipment, especially ones right up at the front and right up at the face. If there was to be a pocket of gas or a, a spike in the concentration that got below a very low threshold of acceptability, the system automatically shuts down. If the power goes off or the ventilation stops, then obviously the methane concentrations build up. But standard operating practices there, when the power goes off, you leave. You leave immediately, in an orderly way, because it doesn't build up that quick, but you leave. That's ingrained in every coal miner's training. The Energy and Resources Minister, Jerry Brownlee, says it shouldn't be forgotten a mine company has a very strong economic interest in keeping its shafts and workers safe. And he says no safety problems at Pike River were ever reported. There's no series of concerns that have been expressed by the Department of Labor who have responsibility in this area. And you know that the idea that you invest such a huge amount in an undertaking like this to somehow put it at risk is somewhat absurd. And uh, if you look at the procedures that they had up there for the way people entered and exited the mine, the day reports, the shift reports, it's extensive. Yet there are hints Pike's systems might not have been as rigorous as they could have been. The mine companies revealed its system for tracking which staff were underground at any time wasn't working very well. Several hours after the first explosion, Peter Whittle told TVNZ there were 36 tags on the board and the number was revised down only by calling around the men's homes and cross-checking with other equipment. The initial uh, estimates of men underground was taken from the number of cap lamps that were out of the racks and the number of tags on the board, so we had to go through and individually check off each of those names to determine where the men were and whether those lamps were in fact being away serviced, etc. So we've now had an updated number to that, which we, I believe is 27. As I said, 15 of our own direct employees and another 12 local contractors. It can't be discounted. Workers in the mine could have made mistakes too. There's always the chance of simple human error, or possibly a cascading set of errors. In 1896, the inquiry into the Brunner mine disaster found a shot charge had been placed the wrong way round, in a part of the mine where no one should have been working. And the inquiry into the strongman explosion found a miner had fired a charge in a way which breached regulations, breaking through into unchecked, abandoned and gas-filled workings behind.
An international mine safety consultant, David Feichert, says he expects the inquiry to find the safety systems were lacking and mistakes were made. Well, I would predict that as we come to know what the causes were, and there will be several different factors coming into it, we will see that safety organisation was a critical factor at some stage. Really, there's a whole sequence of things that normally take place in these kind of major disasters, usually no one single cause. Statistics from the Labor Department show the mining industry as a whole is one of the more dangerous lines of work, fifth for injuries after other sectors like farming, forestry and fishing, and manufacturing. Five people died in mines in the year to June 2002, and two in 2006. But the department says none had died on the job since then, until now. It's what officials call a low-probability, high-consequence environment because things rarely go wrong, but when they do, they go wrong badly. Up until the early 1990s, there was a system called the Safety Triangle involving mine bosses, a powerful government inspectorate and independent checking inspectors to report to each. But the onus today is on the mine manager without much independent checking. There are just two mines inspectors for the whole country and one technical advisor. This disaster already has the union calling for checking inspectors to be reinstated, and David Feichert agrees. We don't have mines inspectors with the kind of powers and frequency of visits that they do in Australia or the UK, and we no longer have the check inspectors. What happened is that the worker inspectors here were replaced by general safety representatives, and that uh, was a very unfortunate change. The government's already rejected this. It says checking inspectors were often union officials who created unhelpful standoffs with mine management. Another concern that's been raised is over Pike River's location on conservation land. It's been celebrated as the best example of environmentally sensitive mining in the country and in the recent Schedule 4 debate about mining and conservation land was held up as a model for the future. This has now been turned back to ask whether the care taken with the environment actually hampered or compromised the mine's safety, and even whether the Department of Conservation bears some responsibility for the disaster. On TVNZ's Q&A program, the unionist Matt McCartan and presenter Paul Holmes summed up the argument this way. There was discussion about, they've only got one ventilation, there was discussion about having, when they built it, to have more than one. Mm. Then there was made the point about conservation needs sort of versus safe, safety, yeah. and then they found an endangered species of blue duck and yes. then decided not to have the extra ventilation. And we will find out if we have endangered human life for the sake of the blue duck. But Doc says the claims are nonsense. A Doc spokesperson, Rory Newsom, says blue ducks do live in the Pike River near the mine but this has never blocked any of the mine's development. Mr Newsom says a second ventilation shaft for the mine was planned, but Doc didn't expect to receive an approach from the coal company until next year. He says Doc leaves it to the company to apply for whatever it needs to do to keep the mine safe. We've approved all drilling program requests, including all requests we've received for ventilation shafts from Pike River and we actually received a further request from Pike River as part of the access agreement looking to widen the ventilation shaft, and we approved that too. It's also been suggested the mine could have been a much safer open-cast operation, but the company says with or without Doc's permission that was never an option. Peter Whittle. 
the mountain is too up and down, lots of steep and deeply incised valleys. It's all Dock Estate, anywhere between 110 metres and six or 700 metres deep, not because the coal seam changes, but because the size of the mountains above it change. You wouldn't be able to open cut that there. I am a jovial collier lad, as blithe as blithe can be. And let the times be good or bad, it's all the same to me. It's little of the world I know and care less for its ways. For where the dark star never glows, I'll wear away my days. Down in the coal mine, underneath the ground. The big question is whether underground coal mining can ever be made totally safe. In China, more than 2,000 of its most dangerous coal mines have been closed recently. But official figures reveal that at least 2,600 people died in mining accidents there last year. This is equivalent in population terms to nine deaths a year in New Zealand. In the US state of West Virginia, there have been two fatal gas explosions in recent years, one at Sago in 2006 and another at Upper Big Branch Mine last April. Picking up on public sentiment, the Prime Minister John Key said he was ordering a review of the three other underground mines still operating. Mr Key says he won't put people into a dangerous environment. At the end of the day, lots of jobs in New Zealand have an element of risk. You know, if you're a builder, an electrician, you have an element of risk in your job. But there's a difference between risk which is managed and mitigated and a dangerous environment. Now, if this is a dangerous environment, then we need to understand that. But Queensland University's mine safety expert, David Cliff, says it should be possible to get the risk down to a very low level. We can never be 100% certain of anything in coal mining. There are, in there are examples in America and other places where you strike isolated pockets of you know, veins where vents, which methane vents quite suddenly. But if your drainage processes have been effective, that risk is greatly reduced. The former US mine administrator, David McAteer, is leading an independent investigation into the Upper Big Branch explosion, which also killed 29 miners. Mr McAteer says there's simply no excuse for large-scale mining disasters in the 21st century. We know how to mine coal safely. We know how to mine gold safely. And yet, for whatever reason, we're unable to do it on a consistent and, and every-time basis. But as the philosopher says... If we can do it once, you can do it a million times. David McAteer says until this disaster, New Zealand had a reputation for being one of the safest mining countries in the world. But he says the international mining community might have to accept that operations should stop until the science is better developed. We are not in a very good position of understanding what is going on in front of us in a mining setting. We're operating on a principle of, of sort of blind leadership and we mine into the coal and we don't have a sense of what's in front of us. And we need to have better geological analysis of what we can expect. And we then need to be degasifying the coal seams if it's that case. We need to be having our redundant systems built more vigorous and more supportive so that we don't have failures of ventilation systems. And if we do, we need to have redundant systems to make sure that explosions don't carry out and kill 29 miners. On the West Coast, there are people who now don't want to go back underground or have wives or partners who wish they wouldn't. I didn't want him going down there in the first place. I, you know, I desperately didn't want him to go down and I still don't really. Yeah, but there's not a huge amount of options around here for work. But, you know, I've been thinking there's going to be a lot of young kids who are not going to have their dads around anymore and I 
don't want that to be my kids. But others accept a level of risk is part of the industry, as it has always been. There's always going to be a risk there, isn't there? Nature. It's like the sea, I suppose. You can't rule these things, can you? You can only try and do what you can do. But right now, a safety cloud hangs over the mining industry as a whole. The Australasian Institute of Mining and Metallurgy's New Zealand branch president, Cam Wiley, says all companies will be double-checking their safety systems. I believe everybody who has uh, got an underground operation at the moment will be going back, and, and they will be going through all of their planning, all of their work, all of their instrumentation. They will be absolutely going through everything with a fine-tooth comb now. I think that'll be a expectation. Now, they might tweak, they might adjust, they might do things. But I think also we just have to go back and say, look, our track record is for a very high level of safe operation. And there are other impacts. The disaster's torn at the heart of the West Coast. And it's also creating an economic shock. The chief executive of Development West Coast, John Chang, says mining accounts for more than half the region's total economy. And although Pike River was just gearing up, its closure has to have a negative effect. Dr Chang says ways must be found to support the whole industry through a difficult time. It's in the interest of the nation, I think, in order to crawl out of uh, this indebtedness for the uh, current situation. Trade balance isn't looking too good. Extraction industry, in the interest of the nation, is very important in my view. The events have also been a shock for the national-led government, which has lauded Pike River's example as it's championed the wider mining industry. The Energy and Resources Minister, Jerry Brownlee, refused requests from Insight to talk about the disaster's implications for the government and its plans to develop mining as a major export earner. Much may depend on whether Pike River can be reopened. The company's putting much of its effort into making it safe and accessible to the recovery teams, but it also has a team keeping the lights on and turning their minds to the mine's future. The company's chairperson, John Dow, says it'd be a mistake to assume the mine will have to close. Everything on the surface remains intact. We've got uh, water pipelines, roads, power lines, infrastructure, offices, workshops, the coal preparation plant, the loadout facilities at Ekamatua and the entire network of support to this operation from the portal on down. And so there's a significant amount of the capital that's been invested in this business is, is clearly available and useful to us. And my view on it is that a pipe would be considered to be an advanced development project. Clearly we won't be a coal mine for a while, but equally clearly the site has value, it has the ability to be rebuilt, but until we understand exactly what the scale of damage is underground, it's hard for me to say how much that might cost and how long it might take. This will have to be gone over in much more detail and with far more resources during the many investigations which are just beginning. But for now it's possible to draw some initial conclusions. History suggests some human error might be involved, as it was in many past mine disasters. There'll have to be questions about whether the methane drainage systems and the safety systems were adequate, and whether the miners were adequately trained and supervised. Whether they were or not, 
It'll also have to be asked whether uncontrollable dangers at Pike River and other underground mines exceed modern-day expectations of worker safety. The Royal Commission's expected to take up to two years to complete. That insight was written and presented by Ian Telfer. Technical production was by Leanne Smith and it was produced by Sue Ingram.